Well, good morning, each of you. It's a pleasure to be here with you and an honor to bring uh, the word this morning. Exalt the Lord. And, uh, but I am so limited in what I'm able to do. But uh, I really want to uh, preach this message this morning to the exhortation of our people here and also to the comfort and the encouragement of the promises of God and all these things. So, um, if you would, let's let's pray before we begin. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you so much for uh, the the privilege and the blessedness to be here. Amen. And Lord, as we open up your word, I just I ask you, Lord, to make your word be um, to fill this place and fill our hearts that we would rejoice in you and, and truly let us trust in your word and take you at your word yes. and dismiss everything else that's not in line with it. Uh, so Lord Jesus, be exalted this morning and be in this place with us and teach us and uh, help us as we leave here. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus, I pray, amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to deviate from Matthew chapter 5 and take a break from there this morning and uh, preach something that's uh, been on my heart for a few weeks. Um, in fact, I preached a little bit from this message on college campus a while back. And uh, I'd ask you to turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 14 on to chapter 7, verse 1. <clears throat> That's going to be our uh, target for this morning. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Well, I'm going to try my best to wake us up this morning. Um, I've entitled this message, The Exclusivity of Christ. And there are so many other uh scriptures from the Bible that could have that same title because the Bible is all about the exclusivity of Christ. But Christianity is not an all-inclusive religion. We need to understand that. Christianity is exclusive because Jesus is the exclusive way, the exclusive truth, life, and the only way to the Father. Jesus is exclusively holy, along with the Father and the Spirit, the three being one. The very nature of Christ is to create division, to bring in the sword and cause a disagreement between right and wrong, righteousness and unrighteousness, holy and holy. There needs to be a distinction and a difference. We see that from the Matthew 10.34 passage that I think Brother Philip quoted last time that don't think that I came to bring peace but a sword. That's significant. 
So not that our churches are like secret societies and we don't let anyone in and we shut the doors, and um, but our churches indeed must discriminate on membership and um, who is allowed to continue in fellowship. We can invite unbelievers to church. Let's say after a few visits, the leaders of the church ought to sit down with that person, have a discussion, and if that person has a confession of faith, that confession needs to be confirmed in some way. Maybe by examining the fruits. In the case of one who is in open denial of Christ, his person, uh, according to the scriptures, the leaders should present the gospel to that one and make it clear that only upon true conversion can they continue in fellowship within the church. And sadly, most churches haven't done this. And when it is done, sometimes it's done in the wrong way. It's not that they have to meet all these certain criteria and think exactly the way we do, but it is some significant criteria that must be met, and that is the new birth. Because the most dangerous thing to the church is for us to allow unbelievers to set up shop within the body and allow their influence to take hold, and then we begin to cater to the world. And have this false hope that we will somehow entice people to the devices of the world to come to Christ. It is impossible, it is utterly impossible to make a league with the world and have the result be the advancement of God's kingdom. God's kingdom and His King, Jesus Christ, does not negotiate with the world, and neither should we. The gospel is non-negotiable. It is the only deal on the table. It is the only deal that's sufficient to save. And we better be on the right side of the issue. His king will and is subduing the world and its evil. And sometimes it may not seem like that's the case because we know evil is growing and uh, men will wax worse and worse and, and we, we know all this and we see it. It's almost like the, the church is in full retreat and we're just trying to hold on to little scraps of what was left. But that's not so because remember the, the Luke 21, 28 passage because when you see these things begin to pass, then look up, lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. So many evangelical churches and leaders are so willing to work alongside people of other religions. So many professed believers of today are so willing to accept the world's ideas and philosophies and accept idolatry for the sake of unity and inclusiveness. There is this spirit of unity and inclusiveness that is, it's not even subtle anymore, but it's pervasive. It's under the radar. It looks like something that it's not. And it is the new religion of the world that is called humanism. Yes. That's the religion of the world. That's the predominant religion of our day. It's humanism. It's man-centered in the middle, cater to the, the, the man as a consumer. What, what does he or she want? We want people to be healthy, wealthy, prosperous in a certain way. One commentator once said that Americans are today so enamored with equality that they would rather be equal in slavery than unequal in freedom. You can't have total equality and freedom because freedom means that you can't dictate or you, you can't guarantee an outcome. 
You have an opportunity to do something, but it's not going to guarantee success. But humanism wants to guarantee everybody's outcome. And that is what happens. The command here, and it is a command, not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, Christ deniers. But when an alliance between the Christian and the world is formed, the Christian exchanges the freedoms that he has for equality with the world. And that equality is slavery. Anyone outside of Christ is a slave to sin. Look at Galatians 5.1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Christ is exclusive in His power to set us free from sin, from the entanglements of the world. He is exclusive, the only one who can set us free from sin and the entanglements of the world. And so much about apprehending Christ and having faith in Christ is to be separate from the world. Fundamental doctrine in Christianity. So many times, Israel did wrong in times of trouble. They sought not the face of their God. They called not on His name, but instead looked to the enemies of God. They looked to the world for rescue, forsaking the Lord and making an alliance with the wicked, the very enemies of God. Isaiah 31. Reading through verse 3. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. Yet he also is wise and will bring evil and will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the help of them that work iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses flesh and not spirit. When the Lord shall stretch out his hand, both he that helpeth shall fall, and he that is hoping shall fall down, and they shall all fail together. An alliance with the world is an alliance against God. No matter what the subject matter or the scenario, friendship with the world is enmity with God, James 4 4 says. So, an alliance or an agreement with the world will only serve to hasten destruction, solidify defeat. One who chooses to affirm except be inclusive of the world and its evil neither helps themselves or helps their cause or even helps um, the world. Mm-hmm. Pastors compromising for the sake of numbers. We'll see this here in a minute, but what Paul is talking about in Second Corinthians is going on again today. You see, they were trying to meld Christianity with paganism. Because that's what was popular. Mm-hmm. We can mail these two together. Let's get more people in for the sake of followers, for the sake of money. That's what false teachers do. Right. And today, pastors compromising for the sake of numbers. The Christian who is truly in Christ has a real chance, a real opportunity to be a beacon of hope for the lost, to be a a true help to the world by being set apart. You have to be set apart and in alignment with God or you're not going to be able to help anybody. 
We have a true and genuine chance here to really help the lost and dying world, the people who are in bondage to sin. Mm -hmm. And by the mercies of God, please let's consider this. Helping the world is not making things palatable to them or removing the offensiveness of the gospel. Sometimes, oftentimes, helping the world in genuineness is bringing the truth to bear on the situation. Not by coming alongside the world in affinity but by calling them to come alongside Christ and forsake sin. That's right. Now these scriptures, 2 Corinthians 6, they expose very clearly that we live amidst two very different kingdoms that oppose one another. And that it is impossible to be a part of both simultaneously or to shuttle back and forth. Look at what it says here. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. One kingdom is described as righteous, light, a temple of the living God, under Christ's authority, life, and membership in the family of God. Adopted as a son or daughter. The other kingdom is described as unrighteous, darkness, under the authority of Satan, a temple of idols and lies, and death. So with these two opposing kingdoms being so different, how can we possibly come together in unity? We can. It is possible. You can have unity with the world if you compromise the truth. That's all you have to do. You can compromise the truth and you can have unity with the world. But you will have disunity with God. That's right. That's right. The only way for there to be unity between the two is there to be a compromising of the truth. To question, to cast shadows over what God has said. Hath God really said that? Well, that's what he meant for back then. But what about now? How does this apply to us? I mean, I think we can clearly see that a lot of the things that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church are the same things going on now. And so they directly apply to us. There's nothing new under the sun. But these are are things that the people within the modern evangelical realms and and, and round tables and talking conferences, these are the things that they're struggling with. The Southern Baptist Convention recently just started accepting the social gospel and and uh, all the things that go along with that. A compromising of the truth. And this is why tolerance only goes one way. Have you ever noticed that? Tolerance only goes one way. We're the ones who's always told you need to be more tolerant. The tolerance narrative is constantly being pushed on us. We must be more tolerant, they tell us. All the time. But it only goes one way. For example, these... LGBT, transgender affirming people, they're some of the most intolerant people I've ever met. 
The ungodly are intolerant of God. That's right. They will not have him to rule over them. And we're not going to be able to convince them by doing the things they do or appealing to some kind of uh, outward thing or appealing to their flesh or their, their ungodly and worldly motives. We're not going to be able to be an effective tool for Christ to truly convert people by just being like the world, but a little bit lighter. You know, we take the world's music and we bring it in the church and we, we give it a Christian flavor and then all of a sudden it's great. These things that we have done have not done anything to advance the kingdom of God. Because when it finally gets down to the bottom line that Christ is exclusive and there's no other way, they're intolerant to that. They won't have that. Now we have seen the fruits of Christians tolerating, unifying with the world and not taking the doctrine of exclusivity serious. They reduce Christianity to a mere self-improvement moral code. They reduce the church to an entertainment venue. And so why come to church on Sunday during football season? They just exchange one form of entertainment for another. Well, I like, I mean, my church has got such good music and I love going. The people are great, but you know, it's football season and you know, they're just prioritizing their entertainment when it is reduced to that. They remove the offensiveness of the gospel in order to cater to the consumer like any other business. In removing the offensiveness of the gospel, and mark this, they end up preaching another gospel. And this is why you see Christian authors writing books like Your Best Life Now and, and uh, Ten Ways to a Better Marriage or all these things that, that don't really get to the root of the problem because they're marketing to the masses. And so people don't really want Jesus to save them. They just want Jesus to kind of improve their life a little bit. And so we must bring the full gospel and preach the salvation. But they end up preaching another gospel. And what does the Holy Scripture say to people who do that? Let him be accursed. That's right. Anathema. That's right. Strong, condemning language to anyone who preaches another gospel. Now he says that there in Galatians 1.8 because the one who does this is blocking, standing in the way, of the lost person in the only way they can truly be saved. The person that's lost in their sin and Jesus is bidding them to come. This person preaching another gospel comes and stands in the way and prevents him from coming to Christ. The true Christ. To hide the true gospel. To hide the true Savior from the ones who need it. And instead they offer a fake gospel that may look good on the outside, but friends, some things just glitter and shine. Mm -hmm. They have no value. But the true Jesus whom the Bible proclaims is the real jewel. Mm -hmm. And God forbid that we do nothing while there are people standing in the way with these false gospels as a roadblock to the lost receiving the genuine gospel and the genuine Savior. It has been said that when the early church fathers, and you also see this in the apostles, when they preached and when they wrote, 
on up to the age of the Reformers. When they would preach Christ, they also were compelled to preach against the Antichrist. The two went hand in hand. There is an opposing of lies in order to proclaim the truth. And I think we need to get back to that. Instead of tolerating the spirit of Antichrist, we need to start opposing it. So let's start to unpack this more and get more to the practical and what this means for us. First, before we can understand that, let's look at the them then. What the setting was for this and why the Holy Spirit through Paul says this to the Corinthian church. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Well, it's no secret that the church in Corinth was having some trouble with sin, to say the least. Yes. And if the American church can identify with any church in the New Testament, I would say it's the Corinthian church. Corinth was a place of open and accepted lewdness. Sexual immorality was just an everyday part of life. Pagan idolatry was the governing religion of the day. It governed everything. And these new Christians in Corinth, in this atmosphere, had a hard time totally severing the old habits. Now listen, the way with pagan religion is a diversity of gods. Right. Diversity rules the day. Diversity, diversity, diversity. Okay? Oh, your God is called Jesus? Well, that's great. But he's just another one on the long list of gods. Diversity. Diversity. You'll notice that in our society, it's not much different. Diversity is the chiefest of philosophies and virtues. And you are of utmost virtuous if you get on board with this diversity. Businesses, places you go to work at, most of them have diversity training. The government, all the time talking about diversity. They want diversity in everything. Diversity is a lie and a scam. We should not blindly accept all other religions and cultures and beliefs. Because what that ends up doing, we accept these other religions, cultures, and beliefs under the guise of diversity, under the guise of tolerance and love. And it all sounds great, but we end up undermining our own faith. We end up making our own Beliefs that we once held so strongly and dear to, we make them take a back seat. And in some cases, they even make us feel bad for these things. And this is not a political speech, by the way, but it does have to do with the religion that has taken hold of humanism and how it is seeking to just make Jesus Christ fall to the background and he's just another God on some long list. And he is not... He is exclusively the only Savior. Amen. So Jesus being treated like just another God on a long list. But here comes Paul, armed with the Scriptures and the Gospel, and teaches them that Jesus is in fact the only Savior, the only truth. There is no other way to God but through Jesus. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 1, 2 through 9. And this is just going to give us a flavor of the exclusivity of Christ. And by the way, we're going to look at some other passages from 1 Corinthians. And obviously the Corinthians would have had this epistle as well as 2 Corinthians. They would have been understanding what Paul is saying in light of 1 Corinthians um, and so the two are connected in that way. 1 Corinthians 
uh, 1 beginning in verse 2, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given to you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's so much there to unpack. I don't want to give a teaching on what this scripture is saying, but I only want you to see the exclusivity of Christ there. How many times is Jesus Christ mentioned in, in just these eight verses? Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. Oh, almost in every verse. The exclusivity of Christ is pouring out from what he's saying here. So Jesus Christ is no run-of-the-mill idol. He's no just some God on a list of other gods. So evidently, many in the church of Corinth would come to fellowship with the saints and they would worship God. And then the next day they would be either passively or intently back at the pagan temple doing their pagan idolatrous thing. And they would be trying to shuttle back and forth from one to another. So Paul is admonishing them here that that is not possible. Mm -hmm. So, here comes the classic, familiar statement. And it is a command. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. The Greek term, this is all one Greek word and it's a phrase. It's heterozygeo. And it means to yoke up two different things to labor together. Be ye not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now Paul draws this from no other place but the law. Deuteronomy 22.10 says this, Thou shalt not plow with an ox and an ass together. You see how many of these spiritual things relate to the law and how the spiritual addresses the practical. This is why I love the law of God and exalt the law of God. Amen. This is why I know it's, it's not abolished, it's practical, it's, it's for us here and now. Thou shalt not plow with an ox and an ass together. <clears throat> what would happen if you hitched up an ox and a donkey together and tried plowing? Well, one thing I do know is that you're not going to have a very straight furrow. Sorry. Because the two animals have totally different natures, you see. They have different levels of strength, different temperaments, a different gait. Attempting to make them work together will not complete the task and will likely harm both of the animals. So you must choose a side, either an ox or a donkey, either a goat or a sheep, either a wheat or a tear. You can't go back and forth. You must serve Christ or idols. You cannot do both. And once you have a changed nature, a new creation in Christ, There is no part of the world's kingdom. 
If we're honest, sometimes we miss some of the things, don't we? We miss some of the things before we knew Christ. And that's to our shame. Because what we give up to follow Christ, we gain so much more. But we can't do both. A donkey and an ox can't plow together. <clears throat> this is a fundamental to the Christian faith. It's historical, widely accepted orthodoxy. And it is a command, and it's, if we're honest, at times very challenging for us. Because sometimes we don't know how to take it. So what does it mean for us to be truly separate? Do we try and just spiritualize the whole thing and throw out the, 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 the very practical application of the command to be separate? Well, I'm a new creature. I mean, I'm, I'm spiritually clean, so it doesn't really matter. And we misuse the verse where Paul says, all things are lawful to me, but not all things are expedient. So we just kind of go with the flow. Do we all shave our heads and go join a monastery on top of a mountain so the world can't get to us? Totally isolate. Some people have done that. That's not what this means. Well, let's look at five rhetorical questions the apostle presents us. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? Five rhetorical questions. And the answer is five times the same. None and nothing. To be a Christian... You have to understand this, and I'm all the time learning this all the more, that to be a Christian is a high calling. Mm -hmm. It means something. Yes. It's not just an extracurricular, like, you know, being on a baseball team or being from Tennessee or, or all these things that we attach to our identity. Mm -hmm. It means something so much greater to be a Christian is a high calling. To belong to Christ, can you understand and, and really fathom this point to belong to Christ? You're His possession. That's a high calling to belong to the King of the universe. And Lord, help us to understand what this truly means. Yeah. It is not at all common, but is to be specially separate. Not that we are special or better than other people, but that we're better off because of Jesus' work in us. It is a holy calling. So there is a real call here to separate. Mm -hmm. To not look like the world. We shouldn't dress like the world. To not talk like the world. To, do, to not do the things that they do, i.e. to abstain from sin. And even the appearance of evil, 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says. Even the appearance of evil. And I believe these things come as natural consequence of having real faith in Christ. And I love how the authorized version says in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a peculiar people. We should be peculiar. There must be a clear distinction between the people of God and the people of the world. In verse 15, where he says here, And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Belial is another name for the devil or children of the devil. And is there, friends, not a clear distinction between Christ and the devil? Of course, and it should be with those of each kingdom. We aim to be like Christ. Okay, so we know that this is a 
a real call to separation. We know that this is not teaching us that we must join a mountaintop monastery and be totally cut off from the world. Because the Great Commission tells us in Mark 16 to go into the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. We have John 17, verse 15 through 16, where Jesus prays to the Father and says, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Pretty simple. Notice there the identifying with Christ. He is not of the world. His people are not of the world. So in the world, but not of the world. Living alongside them, but not in unity with them. We know that this can't mean to totally disassociate with any and all unbelievers because of what the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13. And this will shed light on the whole matter. <clears throat> we go back to 1 Corinthians 5. And remember, like I said, the Corinthians would have understood this in light of 1 Corinthians as well. Because guys, we need the whole counsel of God. We don't, we don't dictate truth and hang truth based on cherry picking one verse. That's right. But listen to this. <clears throat> First Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 9. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Or some of your translations may say um, immoral people or something like that. It's just fine. Yet not altogether with fornicators of this world or with covetous or extortioners or with idolaters. For then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner. With such an one, no, not eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do ye not do, do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So, there was something that he had said before there in verse 9, and he brings it up. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Okay, pretty simple. But I want you to mark verse 10. Yet not all together with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. Understand what he is saying here. In other words, he's saying, when I told you not to associate at all with immoral people, I was primarily talking about those inside the church that profess to be a brother but practice sin. Because if it, if it was meant to be the people who are unbelievers of the laws, then you'd have to go out of the world. And that's not possible. Because that's not what Jesus calls us to do. That's not We are to go into the world for the purpose of evangelism. So he, he clarifies this issue. Yet not all together with the fornicators of this world. Not all together. So it means maybe sometimes you do, but not in every case, because to do that, you'd have to completely be on a, a mountaintop monastery, totally isolated from everyone, just sitting there contemplating the growth of your hair and reading the scriptures. So primarily, what's the point is, anyone who calls himself a brother, the one who's inside the church that's practicing sin, get them out, don't associate with them. I was not primarily talking about lost people, because to do that, you must totally go out of the world and isolate yourself. So this does not mean 
We are to totally sever all our relationships with those who are unbelievers. Although, I do believe those relationships will be very limited because there cannot be any real substance of unity. But this is not a call to cut out family members or others who do not believe, nor is it a call to compromise our faith or the truth to accommodate them. Some may think that on the surface, this gives a pass to divorce an unbelieving spouse. It, of course, does not. For we have other scripture that address that issue. For example, 1 Corinthians 7 teaches if an unbelieving spouse is content to remain, then remain together. What is this teaching in light of all other scriptures that I've presented to you? Matthew 10, 34, Galatians 5, 1, Isaiah 31, 1 through 3, James 4, 4, Deuteronomy 22, 10, John 17, and this last one we just looked at, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, is that we are to associate with unbelievers in order to evangelize. <clears throat> but we are to be careful not to partake of their evil. Right. So there has to be wisdom there. Right. If there's a brother that struggles with lust, he probably shouldn't go try to witness down at the strip club. If there's somebody who struggles with drunkenness, he doesn't need to go down to the bar and try to evangelize. Mm -hmm. He needs to come out from among them and be separate. But you know, this was the, the accusation against Christ. That's right. That he's a friend of sinners. You know, he hangs around drunkards. And prostitutes and all these things. But we are to break association with those who name the name of Christ, but have a false confession and who remain in sin to put them out. I think that's clear. It doesn't mean that it doesn't require discernment. And wisdom, we shouldn't handle these things brashly, but it needs to be done and taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And we cannot labor in any ministry or religious activity with anyone who is an unbeliever, belonging to another religion, having a false conversion. Mm -hmm. That is strictly forbidden. And is why the ecumenical movement which if you've never heard of that term, it's very dangerous. I heard about it some, I don't know, seven, eight years ago now and did some research in it and it is very sinister. It basically is Christians working with Catholics and Muslims in a broad sense. I mean, there is other ecumenical things, interdenominal what they call ecumenical, but really is interdenominational. But true ecumenism is Christians coming together with Catholics, Muslims, whatever, pagans, for the sake of some kind of moral cause or you know something that looks good to do. And just real quick, this started at the Vatican II Council, which was a council that the Vatican had from 1962 to 1965. In the fall of each one of those succeeding years, they had a meeting. And basically what they did was they, they changed the Roman Catholic's position on the Protestant Reformation. For centuries, their position on the Protestant Reformation was militant. They were to go and stamp it out. Vatican II changed all that. They started labeling Protestants as separated brethren. And they basically came up with a guise to bring Protestants back under the control of Roman Catholicism. Uh, through unity. It's called ecumenism. It's still going on now. The word Protestant, all of you know, literally means to protest the Roman Catholic Church because it is the spirit of Antichrist and so we can't be involved in that ecumenism. And this is the main point we can't work with, unbe with unbelievers for any spiritual or religious causes. Mark that, any spiritual or religious causes. We can work 
in our jobs with unbelievers, we can do enterprise with them and we can uh, be civil and converse with them. That's not what it's talking about. Spiritual and religious causes. We see a similar call for separation. Or first, let me back up. Let's look at verse 17. I was looking at 1 Corinthians and I thought, well, this isn't right. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Separation. We see a similar call for separation in many of Paul's other epistles. Ephesians 5.11, uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.6, which I want to look at that one because it really helps us to see that this is primarily speaking of those who profess Christ. 2 Thessalonians 3.6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. So this helps us to see the primary focus here. There's also the same call in 1 Timothy 6, 5. We cannot allow this world and it's wickedness to draw us in. We cannot go back and forth. And this takes some intentional effort on our part to cut things out. To get rid of evil influences that may lead us into sin. The Gentiles that came to Christ in Corinth. Ephesus, Galatia, they did so within a completely pagan, idolatrous culture. And they were struggling with the tendencies to go back to that life. Because it was all around them. Their family life, their community life. There was festivals and celebrations of these pagan gods every month or so. And in an effort to make Christianity more palatable, you had false teachers come in and seek to take the paganism and meld it with Christianity. To take Judaism and paganism and meld the three together. That is Roman Catholicism. It's a melding. This is why they... They have these murals painted all over the churches and this is why they pray to saints and all these things. These false teachers that preach another gospel and hide the true one. But they, these false teachers, they come in and they try to make Christianity more palatable. And we see that now, today. Very blatant. They want to get more people involved. They want it to be all-inclusive. And they deny the exclusivity of Christ. That He is the only one, the preeminent one. So Paul exhorts them to make a clean break. We must influence the world for the sake of Christ. And to do that, we can't have the world influencing us. Influence must be a one-way thing. Uh, I'll try to give this example. Everybody has heard of an LED, a light-emitting diode. Basically, what it is and how it works is it is a, uh, like in plumbing or water, it's a check valve. It only allows electricity to flow one way and not backfeed. 
or at least that's what a diode is. A light emitting diode is a diode that basically creates light in the process, but it allows electricity or water to flow in one direction. And when it tries to come back because of differentiation in pressure, it won't allow it to, it blocks it. That's the same way we have to be in our Christian life with influence. Our influence has to go one direction. And when they try to influence us, and there's a differentiation in pressure, in other words, more of them than us, or their voice is louder than us, that check ball has to close. And now it, hasn't, it can't impact us. Come out from among them and be ye separate. Verse 17. We see the command clearly. Thus saith the Lord. Come out from among them and be ye separate. Holiness should be our lifelong quest as unbelievers. Holiness. Not these titles and the things that we do for the Lord, but pursuing a holiness should be our lifelong quest as believers. Verse 18 and 7, 1. And I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, promise, the blessedness of separation. To be separate means to be set apart for God. His pleasure, His faithfulness, His and our joy, what we endeavor to lose, to separate from the world, means we gain so much more. see this in the example of a husband and wife. The wife is exclusively belonged to the husband. And the husband exclusively belongs to the wife. And there is a blessedness there. When we allow the world to come in and influence us, we're allowing an outside force into that special covenant that we have with God. That's right. So here is the true gospel. The exclusivity, the, the exclusiveness of Christ, the preeminence of Christ Jesus. The one who stands alone able to take away the sin of the world. Your sin. And oh, how you have sin. Sin courses through your veins and it separates you from God. Separates you from the blessedness of the separation from the world and the joining together with God in Christ Jesus. And so this... This, this true gospel that Jesus alone, the all-sufficient Savior, the exclusive one who stands alone and calls you out of the world to be in relationship with Him, the one who died for sin, who forsook the pleasures of the world, was faithful to us. His commitment. He was the one. The only one. He stands alone. And, 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 and beckons and calls. And says come unto me. All ye are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Rest for your souls. He is not. Just any run of the mill. Historical figure. Or something like this. And that's why there is a call away from the world to be truly separate. 
Because he is separate. He stands alone. And so if we stand with him, if we call him our Savior, then we stand apart from the world. Come out from among them and turn away from sin. Turn away from unholiness. Unrighteous. Turn and run to Christ. And the last thing is I want to leave you with this from Revelation 18.4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out from her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. The call of the gospel is a call to flee, to come out from the world and be joined to Christ. And this is what we need for salvation. This is what we continue to need for sanctification. And so I just implore us and I want to encourage you, brothers, that we have, and sisters, that we have a Savior who stands alone in His strength and power and His love and might. We have to stand with him and against all these pretenders because he is preeminent and exclusive. So praise the Lord and, and, and blessed be the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're dismissed. Thank you.